You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras. Thanks for tuning in. We got another great week of podcasts lined up here on the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network. And today, we're going to kick it all off talking with a gentleman from Tennessee, and his name is Nate Kendall. And Nate is going to talk to us about how he prepared for his first ever Western hunt. And that was him and his father. He took his father out west to hunt antelope for the very first time. And uh, that's what today's podcast is all about, man. Uh, Just the preparation, the hunt itself, the logistics. Uh, We talk about the money they spent. A lot of that going around lately because I'm actually myself doing a lot of planning for this Colorado trip that I have in the near future as well as other hunts that I want to take before I die so uh, awesome podcast today Uh, Nate does a really good job of giving us the details about that hunt Uh, let's see what else today's commercial is Ozonics now if you guys haven't had the chance to listen to a past podcast titled Real Hunter Real Results Uh, it's basically Real Hunters Real Results and Real results, real hunters. I don't. I can't remember the t- official title. That's probably bad that I'm doing a commercial. But anyway, you need to check out that podcast. It's on this feed. Uh, just search Ozonics and you should find it. And it's basically the the story of four other people who have found really good results. You know, these people are not paid to rep Ozonics like I am. But that particular podcast. Three or four people who are, you know, they work full time. They have limited opportunities to go out into the timber and uh, they found success using Ozonics. And it's something that um, I feel very strongly about. I'm a huge fan of ozone and using it not only in the woods, but at home, uh, cleaning my clothes as well. So please go look at that podcast, man. And if you, uh, if you're going to, 
need more information on Ozonix, visit ozonixhunting.com and uh, read up on all of the offers that uh, or all of the products that they have available. Uh, really good company run by really good people and I love partnering with them just for that reason alone. So enough talking. Let's get into today's man, I guess we'll call it a hunter profile podcast BS session with Nate Kendall. All right. On the phone with me today, Mr. Nate Kendall. How are we doing today, Nate? Doing great, Dan. So I got an email from you. And this email, it's a long email basically explaining how you took your dad to Wyoming for your first ever Western experience as far as hunting is concerned. And you guys went out and you hunted antelope, pronghorn, and uh, that's what today's podcast is going to be about. But before we get into all that, why don't you tell everybody where you're from and what do you do for a living? Sounds great. Um, I live in West Tennessee. Uh, I'm a civil engineer for a living. Been doing that for the last four and a half years since I graduated from college. Grew up in West Tennessee. I started hunting when I was 13 after we moved from the city out into the country on my grandparents' farm. Was able to, through trial and error, become relatively successful as a, a deer hunter, a turkey hunter i hunt ducks small game varmints i love hunting with my bow i love hunting with a rifle a shotgun any anything any way pretty much is is my take on hunting nice nice so you were born and raised uh, a civil but before we get into that civil engineer i've always been kind of confused what does a civil engineer do? Like city layouts and planning and zoning type stuff? That falls under civil engineering. It's actually, at, at the office I work at, we're a full-service engineering firm, so we have a little bit of everything. And nobody there can figure out what a civil engineer does. <laughs> because I work, I work in the civil department, but there are civil engineers in half of the departments there. So what I actually do is... Um, we work on a lot of municipal projects, uh, sanitary sewer, which isn't very sanitary, storm drainage, you know, water distribution, stuff like that. That's what I'm doing currently. Gotcha. Making sure everything flows to the creeks and rivers that they're supposed to and not flood basements <laughs> and all that stuff, right? That's right. That's right. Nice, nice. Okay. So that's what you do. And you mentioned, you know, eastern Tennessee is your home. And you kind of, you grew up hunting there, but you kind of have a little bit different story than most because, you know, typically I could ask the question, who got you into hunting? And you would, most people would answer, oh, my dad or my grandpa. That's not the case with you. So kind of walk, walk us through how you ended up getting into hunting. Well, it's actually a kind of a funny story. Um, probably when I was six or seven, I heard a story about a mountain man out in the Rocky Mountains. And at this time, we lived in town, and nobody in my family hunted. And I decided that when I grew up, I wanted to be a mountain man. <laughs> and that was kind of my sole driving focus, you know, until I figured out that that wasn't a very feasible way to make a living in, in the modern world. 
And when I was 13, my family actually moved out into the country onto my grandparents' farm. And I was able to start hunting at that time. And probably the, the, the best gift I've ever been given was in Tennessee, you can get a lifetime hunting license. And my grandparents bought that for me when I, we moved out there. So that covers, you know, deer hunting, turkey hunting, waterfowl, um, all the public hunting areas that require um, an additional license. That's all covered under that lifetime license nice. that I have. So, yeah, I mean, they, they went out on a limb. I'd never been hunting, but I'd been talking about it for, you know, six or seven years. So they just figured it would be, I think it was $800 when they bought it. It's pretty pricey, but it's more than paid for itself. But, yeah, I'd, I'd read a lot of books growing up on hunting, and mo- most of them were, you know, guys hunting the Rocky Mountains, you know, Jack O'Connor, stuff like that way back in the day. So when I actually went out and started hunting by myself, there was a whole lot of trial and error, um, several boxes of ammunition that didn't hit anything. <laughs> uh, but, but you know, over, over the years, I became fairly proficient. You know, first several years I hunted, it was just trying to put meat in the freezer. I come from a fairly large family. I've got uh, six siblings, so I killed. After the first couple years when I started getting the hang of deer hunting, I was able to harvest, you know, four to seven does or little bucks a year to put in the freezer. And, you know, over time I started getting pickier about the the caliber of bucks that I would shoot or wouldn't shoot. And, um, you know, these days I'm still killing quite a few does and uh, probably I've been averaging one good buck for the area, hunt a lot of private land, a spattering of public land in there. But, uh, yeah, I kind of trial and error self-taught. So, Gotcha. That's the best way, man. Um, so you live in Tennessee. What is the, you know, the Appalachian Mountains go right through Tennessee, right? They do. Um, I actually live on the west side of the state. So oh, west side. Okay. Yeah. Um, I've done a little bit of hunting in the Appalachians, but not successful to this point. Where, where I'm at, it's rolling hills in some areas. Where I grew up in northwest Tennessee, it was more rolling hills. Um, did a lot of hunting on cattle farms, actually, you know, pastures and, and woodlots. I'm hunting more in the central west Tennessee now. It's a lot more river bottoms flat country, you know, ag fields, and then big, mature um, hardwoods nice. in the bottoms along, along the rivers. So hunting a lot of river bottoms these days. So then what's the what's deer hunting like in Tennessee? You know, that I've heard that there's places in on the east side of the country, your Tennessee's, your North and South Carolina, um, that have good numbers but if you're looking for a good quality buck you're, you're just not gonna find it does that kind of run true with tennessee or are there pockets of really good deer hunting it, it's really property specific in tennessee you know like like most states we've had a three buck a year bag limit forever and just in the last couple of years they've bumped that down to two bucks we have a six weeks of archery followed up with two weeks of muzzleloader and then five to six weeks of rifle which starts in mid-november yeah so you know there's a there's a lot of pressure 
actually in the counties I hunt in, the antlerless deer bag limit is three a day. So I could legally kill hundreds of deer every year. If you wanted with, to. You know, if I wanted to. So most most areas of Tennessee, it's hard to find a good buck. Where where I hunt, I'm fortunate enough to hunt several, you know, fairly large pieces of private in the two to three hundred acre range with a couple other guys who are fairly picky about what they shoot and we're we're able to kill one or two you know three or four year old bucks a year in that 130 to 145 kind of class and and i know people who have you know larger leases that they've been hunting for a while who kill consistently kill those 140 150 type deer every year so it's really it's really property specific i think the was two years ago the largest hunter harvested buck in the nation score wise yeah actually came from tennessee yeah so we can grow them it's just a matter of letting them get will we (laughs) yeah Yeah. Yeah. absolutely so you kind of grew up you know hunting you know the rolling hills is there a lot of ag or is it uh is that sporadic and mostly like the big hardwoods like you said it's pretty even. I'd say there's a lot of ag, um, but you've got, you know, big ag fields and then big blocks of timber. Yeah. And where I where I grew up hunting, it was more scattered kind of cattle pastures, smaller ag fields. But where I'm hunting now, it's bigger open fields with large tracts of timber. Nice, nice. And um, so you've been hunting since you were 13. How old are you now? I'm 25. Okay, 25 years old. So in that period of time, you have learned about how to hunt whitetails. Was this your ve- this was your very first trip out west to try to get uh, a different species as far as like uh, elk or mule deer or pronghorn? It, it was. It's always been a you know something I've wanted to do and was finally able to you know make it happen. Got to the point and in life he had a uh, married and our we had a daughter our first child back in 2014 or 2015 excuse me so we were able to you know kind of get through that and get settled and then i was able to make the trip happen gotcha so the question i like to ask guys is when when they start making changes to their hunting uh i always find this interesting what was it you know because a lot of people are content i i know plenty of guys who are content with sitting in their home state and just doing their hunting tradition every year. They take their two, you know, they take their two weeks off of, uh, for the rut or a week off for the rut. They hunt some weekends scattered here and there, and they're completely happy with that. What was it about getting out West and wanting to try something new that you found so appealing? It's been something I've wanted to do for a long time. I grew up reading stories about hunting out hunting out west, hunting the pronghorn and mule deer and, and elk and even even in Tennessee growing up I've always wanted to hunt that other species, whether it was find a place where I could hunt rabbit or turkeys or squirrels or get into coyote hunting and waterfowl hunting. Um, it I don't know, I guess I just wanna hunt. I wanna try wanna try everything. Right. Right. So 
when you started this, when this thought popped into your head, like, okay, I'm ready to go do something different. What was that thought process like? Why did you, and why did you choose antelope for the first, you know, non-whitetail species to go hunt? As far as big game, this might take yeah. This might take a minute, but the when I first was thinking, okay, this fall or next fall, because I was really started planning in you know the end of 2016 for this hunt in 2017, and the first thing that I really wanted to go do was an archery elk hunt in the rut, you know, backpack up in the mountains and you know, just go dive in head first all the way. Right. And I started looking at my options for that and the gear that was going to be required. And I figured out pretty quick that I was going to be spending thousands of dollars on gear to, you know, get a lightweight tent right. that I could carry in. Um, just all the different gear that's involved with that backpack hunt. And then, you know, I didn't know how I'd do it altitude, just making the trip out there and working the kinks out. And the success rate on those elk hunts are really low. And I'd kind of would like to have killed something on my first trip to, so I could bring some meat home and say, look at this. It was, it was worth the trip. Right. <laughs> I didn't just go hike around for a week. But w- when I started looking, um, and I, I took my dad on this trip with me and he's in his late fifties, he's had a horse sit on his leg. That was a, that's another story in itself. So he's got a steel <laughs> rod down one leg. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry for laughing, but just the way you presented that, it, to me was uh my dad had a horse sit on his leg it's like yeah you know oh uh, my granddad he fell down a well or you know just like a, a really crazy story <laughs> yeah Continue. Yeah. but uh so so he's not he's not that quick i'll put it that way he's not that quick anymore mm-hmm. and he this was his first big game hunt he, he hunted groundhogs and quail and stuff with a 20 gauge growing up but um you know, hadn't hunted since middle school or high school and he'd never hunted big game so i knew going out there that it it would be a rifle hunt so that he could hunt with me um and then pronghorn they're easy to find they're all over the place out there most of the units in wyoming have 90 plus percent success rate on pronghorn and there are a lot of units that you can draw wyoming is hands down the the destination for a pronghorn hunt you can kill bigger pronghorn in some of the southwestern states i believe but as far as getting a tag and numbers of antelope and access to public land um, wyoming is kind of came to the top very quickly when i started researching um, i actually in 2016 i started looking in time and i bought a priority point because all the pronghorn tags in wyoming are on a draw system yep you preference points so I knew if I had one point, I would be able to, you know, I would have more options basically going into the draw. And I think the application or the period in Wyoming to buy a point for pronghorn, it's like $30 and it's, I think, late July through the end of October. So you know, if anybody's thinking about hunting pronghorn or mule deer or elk in Wyoming in the future, you can buy all of those points later in the year. Yeah. And it, it's, it's, it's worth it when you decide to go on the hunt, if you have a few points saved up. Right. And I, but I found it, I believe that that's coming up for Wyoming. Cause I have a, I have a reminder set that I think it's in late June or July is when I can start buying my elk and antelope and mule deer. 
Correct. Uh, points for, Correct. For, for for that. So, yeah, continue. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I, I looked around. I found a unit that I, that I thought we could draw tags in, but it was the, the reason for picking pronghorn was it was high success rate. It was a hunt that wasn't going to require really any any additional gear. I, I went ahead and bought a pack because I knew I'd be using that in future years, kind of basically broke down the the gear list, what will I need in future years that could be helpful to buy now so I don't have to buy it next year. But it was a hunt that required the least expense up front on gear. It was a high success rate. Um, you know, we'd be able to find the pronghorn because it's wide open, so we'd be able to figure them out a little bit. And at the same time, I could go out and kind of test some of the gear that I already had to see if it was gonna if it was gonna hold up, and just learn the the western hunting. You know, just the whole deal. Get out there and experience it the first time on a a low stress hunt where I'm not wondering if I'm even gonna you know see an animal the whole time I'm out there. Right. Right. So. I mean, that brings up a ton of other questions because now that you've, you know, you, you wanted to do elk, okay? Elk's way expensive, uh, depending on where you want to go. Okay, you kind of narrowed it down to Wyoming because of opportunity and success rates, it sounds like. And it was going to take the least amount of um, uh, money from what you, what you found out, mm-hmm. you know, to go ahead and, and get the, the tags to do this hunt. So once you, once you kind of figured that out, how did you go about finding and doing the research on where in Wyoming that you wanted to hunt these pronghorns? Wyoming has a really good hunt planner on their, on the fishing game website. You can go in and select you know, pronghorn hunting, and then you can go through unit by unit and see how many points it took to draw in previous years, look at the harvest statistics, see how many tags have been issued, and they've got good records. And one of the one of the neat features on their website is if you're looking through the list of units, they'll have an asterisk next to some of them. And what that indicates is um, difficult to access public land. So if the units without an asterisk, you can be confident that when you get out there, there's plenty of public land to hunt. You're not going to have any trouble. The ones with the asterisk are going to be a little harder to navigate as far as, you know, accessibility. And what I learned in, in my research is that a lot, of the, a lot of the roads in Wyoming, if they cross private land, a lot of the gravel roads are private when they're on private. So just because it shows up on a map as a road doesn't mean you'll be able to, you know, access that area. But I was able to find a unit because I only had one point. You know, I had limited options, but I was able to find a unit that had a little bit lower tag numbers, you know, so hopefully a little less competition and pressure and a good success rate. But it was one of those units with the asterisk next to it. And looking, I I used Onyx maps and then the county GIS maps to you know, kind of do some research and figure out which of these units I thought I was going to be able to actually, there was enough public land that I could get in there and actually get a good hunt. So I, I, I picked a unit based on that one that I could draw with, you know, hundred percent draw odds with one point for the, for the, any pronghorn tag, the buck tag. And 
the other one of the other important features for me was the availability of what in Wyoming is called a type six, which is a doe or fawn tag. And since pronghorn aren't really big, they're the size of a probably an average doe here in Tennessee, which would be a little deer for you guys Yeah. up in the Midwest. Our, our deer are quite a bit smaller body weight, but I wanted to be able to draw some doe tags for myself and for my dad. And since my dad's not a big game hunter, he has no, care in the world if what he shoots has antlers so i was actually able to i we were successful in all the tags we i applied for i drew a buck tag for myself which was right at 300 dollars, and i think it's i think it's bumped up to 350 or 340 this year so it's gone up a little bit it's still pretty much the cheapest tag in the west yeah the doe tags were 49 dollars a piece for a non-resident and for a non-resident for the doe tag so i looked I was looking for a unit that had good draw odds for the buck tag and for the doe tags. So we actually drew, you can draw up to two type six tags. So we actually went out there with five pronghorn tags. Um, My dad had two doe tags. Okay. I had two doe tags and I had a buck tag. Okay. Okay. So then do you have to buy a, a buck tag before you buy a doe tag for a trip like that? Or you do not. Do um, not. like my okay. dad, I, I applied my dad strictly for doe tags. So if somebody was just really low budget, wanted to just go out West, you know, have a fun hunt, get some shooting in. It's a target rich environment. If you're pronghorn hunting, get some meat for the freezer. You could go out there, draw a couple of doe tags, you know, spend, <clears throat> a hundred dollars and then there's a twelve dollar habitat stamp you have to buy as well so spend a hundred and fifteen dollars on tags and then your gas money out there right man that's i didn't know that i i would have thought that that mm-hmm. those tags would have been more expensive so for the resident uh those doe tags are probably even cheaper yet yeah i think they're like eleven dollars or something <laughs> wow that's crazy then that's one mm-hmm. that's one heck of a resource if the tag is only you know uh, eleven dollars for a resident, uh, but yeah, that, that's cool. Two things of of what you said is one, I've been looking into Wyoming as well because I, you know, it's a state that I've been putting in preference points for, and they have this whole crazy thing where there are thousands of acres of public ground that is not accessible to the public because. It's private land owners all around it, and the private landowners mm-hmm. will not let you go in there, and or they won't let you go through their property because those roads are whatever private, and it's considered trespassing, and they will have a you know they'll have a fit if you you do that, and you know they'll file charges against you, and it's almost like they're holding that property hostage. That they are the unit we actually ended up going to was one of those that had actually a large percentage of the acreage in that unit was BLM ground and state ground, but the majority of that public land was landlocked by private in the center of the unit. So we had a couple of you know areas we could hunt in the southern portion, you know, and then in a couple of the other corners there were areas you could get to. In some spots you could, if you were willing to walk a few miles you'd have a little more to hunt, but the majority of the public was landlocked. And I mean, that's a great resource for people in that unit who are, 
outfitters, you know, who lease the private ground adjacent to it because they can still hunt that public. Yeah. But it's basically private at that point since nobody can get to it without their permission. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, and I don't know if we've talked about this yet, but you got your four doe tags and you got one buck tag. So you got five tags. Did you know what you were going to go hunt them with and what time of year were you going to go? The season where we were hunting was the month of October. So it started October 1st and ran through the end of the month. And we knew we were going to try to go that first week of the season. There was another, there's another batch of tags in that unit that actually start halfway through October. And they're, they're easier to draw. They could be drawn with zero points. The, the tag that I drew for the buck tag, um, you had to have one point. Gotcha. So we knew we were going to go that first week of the season you know, hopefully that way it wouldn't snow, but it was right at the, right at the tail end of the, of the rut for the pronghorn. So the bucks were still with the does a little bit and chasing them around. And I knew we'd be hunting with a rifle since, you know, my dad doesn't bow hunt and pronghorn are notoriously tough to hunt with a bow. I did take my bow out there and bought the archery stamp and I went on one stalk with the bow came to full draw but after that it was it was rifles all the way yeah yeah just a little bit more difficult to do i get close to them within archery range you're saying it definitely um the unit we hunted in was kind of in the north central part of the state gotcha and it was fairly broken terrain actually and we could you could have a successful spot and stalk archery pronghorn hunt in that unit i feel confident if I go back, I think what I will do was because it wasn't really that hard to get on pronghorn and get them with a rifle. You didn't need that many days for the hunt. I would, there's a, in all those units, if you have the buck tag, you can also, if you buy the archery stamp, I think it's like the month before you can hunt with a bow. And so we actually got out there the day before rifle season opened. And that's when I made the stalk with my bow because it was technically bow season still, Gotcha. but not rifle. And we spotted a, a buck bedded down with a doe, and I, you know, circled around behind him and went off on a stalk and came to full draw. You know, they stood up and were leaving the area, and I came to full draw. They were at 60 yards, which I was shooting, you know, every day at 80, really confident, but it was windy. And I was like, this is, you know, we've been, we've been out here for two hours. I'm not going to take an iffy shot. So let down. But then the next day, once the rifle hunters showed up, and they got some, you know, the pressure showed up, basically. They were a lot more skittish. So if I went back, I think I would show up about four days before rifle season opened and hunt with a bow and have a couple of days during rifle season in case I couldn't get it done. I could break out the break out the rifle and so, fill up the coolers. So how does that work? Because this, this kind of confuses me a little bit of how you uh, explain this, where you can get the tags but then you can hunt them with either a bow within bow season or a gun within gun season? Correct. In in most units in Wyoming, there are some exceptions, but it's it's pretty clear in the regulations. Most of the units in Wyoming, you don't draw an archery tag. You draw just the 
any weapon tag, which is good for the any weapon season. Gotcha. And if you want to hunt the archery season, you just buy the archery stamp, which when we went out with $30, I think it's jumped up to $70 maybe this year. So when you, when that's another thing to consider when you're looking at Wyoming, you know, they had tag fee increases. So an elk tag in Wyoming is, I think a non-resident bull tag is over $700 now. Yeah. And then you have a $12 habitat stamp and then a 70 something dollar archery permit if you're going to hunt during the archery season so gotcha and is that species wide or is that like for like an elk or a mule deer in wyoming you you draw the animal then you pay for whatever weapon you want to use and you just have to use that weapon within the season that it's allocated towards it, it is all the species, but the way it works is you draw the if you draw the tag, you then have to pay extra to hunt with the bow. But if you decide to do that, you can still hunt with a rifle during rifle season. Gotcha. So if you say you, you drew the Type 1 elk tag for your unit and you bought the archery permit, you could go out and hunt in September during the rut with a bow. And if you were unsuccessful and you had the vacation time and the and the money for fuel, you could go back out in October or whenever the rifle season was and try again. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes that sounds like a smart move is to go if you're gonna try to get it done with a bow, go bow hunt for four days and then end it with mm-hmm. gun hunts. Now, when when the the rifle season opened there, was it chaos? It sounds like there was a lot of other there's a lot of other people in that same area trying to do the same thing you were. There were, and that was you know kind of a just by virtue of the fact that it was not a lot of accessible public land that unit i don't think gets hit too hard by non-residents because the the season opened on a sunday the rifle season did and there were a lot of people out there sunday a few people out there monday but once we got into tuesday and wednesday we pretty much had had the area to ourselves so we you know the weekend was busy but once you got into the weekdays you know i guess a lot of it was a lot of locals who were you know, at work and just hunting the weekends. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now backing up just a little bit, what was the drive out there like and how much money did you spend drive? Cause you mentioned you drived, right? Correct. Okay. So you drove that. I mean, that's got like what a thousand miles. It was 1400 one way. Okay, 1,400 one way. So talk to us a little bit about the logistics from as far as driving out there and back is concerned. Well, we uh, we drove just so that, you know, we would have a little bit of schedule flexibility. It, it was cheaper than flying and then bringing, you know, we had five tags, so we could potentially have a lot of meat to bring back with us. Right. But what, what we did was we just left um, on a Friday evening after work. Or, you know, I left work a little early, and I think we left at about 4.30 in the afternoon. And I it was 22 hours. We stopped at like 4 in the morning, 4 Saturday morning, pulled over and slept for 2 or 3 hours. And then I drove the whole way, and it took us 25 hours to get there. And it was a 22-hour drive. So we stopped in the middle and slept for a couple hours. But Right. Where, at, where was, did you uh, stop at? Somewhere in eastern Nebraska. Gotcha. So you came through Iowa. It's not, we did gotcha. very briefly in gotcha. the dark. Gotcha. Okay, so you you pulled over a little bit and decided that you were gonna um, 
sleep for just a little bit. Now, how much money did you spend on gas for that trip? I think total on gas, we spent right around $350. Okay. Um, we drove a, we drove a Ford Explorer. I got, I think it's an 05. It got, it got decent fuel economy, not great, but you know, it had room for all our equipment. So it was about $350 for fuel. And, and actually just talking about the overall cost of the hunt, we, we camped out when we were out there, we packed food in a cooler and really our only costs were fuel and tags. Yeah. Yeah. So then, so what did you do? You camped in a tent? Well, that's, that was the plan. That was part of the gear test that we did. We brought our, uh, <laughs> you know, camp, our tent that was works just fine for camping at the lake in West Tennessee. And apparently it wasn't really rated for Wyoming winds. So it was a, it was a little floppy and we didn't, it wasn't that much fun to sleep in. So we used it for a gear shed and actually were able to just sleep in the back of the vehicle, lay the seats down. Oh. That's not bad. Uh, was so th- that that's what I bought this year. <laughs> a good <laughs> for tent. my hunt this fall was a was a better shelter. Nice, nice. I tell you what, man. I had an issue like that um, up in the mountains in Idaho, where there must have been a hole, or the the mm-hmm. waterproofing went out of the tent that I had, and it it got I got wet, and I had to add an additional seven hundred dollars. I bought because I didn't want to go buy some random Coleman while I was out there, mm-hmm. so, so I would have to buy another one. I I bought a high quality tent in probably one of the most expensive towns in the entire United States in Jackson Hole, and man, I, that was an additional seven hundred dollars <laughs> that I I had to kick yep. myself. And then when I told my wife about it, she's like, "What?" And she got pissed too. And oh man, it was nuts. Yeah, that that was one of the nice things about this hunt was that since we were able to, you know, camp by the truck, you know, off the side of the road, we had that flexibility, you know, we didn't know what we were doing. We'd never done it before. So instead of our first experience trying to throw everything in a backpack and take it up a mountain, we you know, we were next to the road. We kind of had a little more control of the of the situation if, you know, we could play it by ear a little better. Right. Okay, so then what about the the meat situation, right? I mean, you had five tags to fill, and how many of those tags did you fill? Every one of them. Okay. Oh, my Lord. So you had <laughs> five pronghorns coming home with you. How many coolers? Did you have to buy a new cooler? I mean, did you plan to be 100% successful in that hunt? I, I did, uh the buck tag was like a, the buck hunt was like a 92% success rate and the does were 94, I think. And for rifle? maybe it's optimism for rifle. Yes, sir. And okay. I, maybe it's optimism, but I assumed that I was at least as good as 94% of the people out there. Yeah. So I figured we would, we would kill them all. I, I, we were able to get all the meat in a, we had a 120 quart cooler and then about a 40 quart cooler that we brought out with us. And I mean, they were very, very full coming back. Full and in Tennessee, we don't have CWD yet. Yeah. So they're really particular about you know importing, you know parts of other animals. So we're not we weren't allowed to bring any bones back except for the skull cap. 
you know, kind of cleaned up off yeah. of the buck. So all the meat was fully deboned. You know, I, I kind of went through it at the campsite, you know, and trim, cut a lot of the trim off that, you know, would get cut off in final processing anyway. I, I process all the deer I kill as it is at home. So it was, you know, pretty, it was, it wasn't a lot of work extra just to cut all the meat off the bone, yeah. you know, throw it in the game bags and, and in the coolers. Gotcha. So that's where you ran into a little bit of a problem, right? As far as that's exactly where I ran into a little bit of a problem. Right. So talk to us about that problem and detailed about why they do what they do. Yeah. So the, the problem that I ran into was on the last day as we were heading out, um, packing everything up, uh, a game warden stopped by to check, check on us, you know, make sure we had all the appropriate licenses and stuff. And when he, he checked the, you know, the game bags for proof of sex and what I had done, because I, I had read about, you know, how do you leave proof of sex attached to the carcass? Because where, where I hunt in West Tennessee, I'm able to bring the whole deer out. So I bring it out, you know, get it checked in online usually, then take it home and do the final processing. Right. And so I've never had the situation of deboning it and leaving the proof of sex attached. And what most people were saying was that they would leave a patch of skin, you know, off the rear end attached to one of the rear hams, to where you could tell that it was a doe. Um, because with the buck, you could keep the head with it, and that was that was enough. And that's that's what I had done. I'd left a piece of skin attached, and wh- where I messed up, I think, was that I I left too small of a piece. If you know, next time I'll definitely leave a a longer strip because probably I left about a you know a four inch by four inch piece attached. And when I had deboned all that meat, you know, I went ahead and separated it into muscle groups, trying to get it as compact as possible. And when we, when, when he stopped by to check for proof of sex, we were going through those game bags and we couldn't find it. It hit the pieces of skin had come detached from the meat and we weren't able to, it able to sort it out. And the game warden was a, he was a great guy. He was, you know, he'd actually, we'd run into him in the field earlier when we had shot one of the pronghorn does and were butchering it. He'd stop by to chat. And so he was willing to kind of work with us. I showed him. I was able to show him pictures of all the pronghorn we'd killed. You know, we had the tags actually attached to the game bags so that he could, you know, see what, what was what. And, you know, so we, we didn't get into trouble over it, but it was a, you know, it was a learning experience for me. I think, you know, in the future, I'll definitely leave a much larger piece of skin attached. That way, if it comes detached in the game bag, I can find it. And I'll probably go ahead and, you know, if it's an antlerless animal, probably go ahead and cut, you know, the udder off or something and leave it in the bag as well. He said that people frequently do that. Right. And I've known, um, I think there's some rules where you have to, I think if it's, you kill a buck, I'm trying to think you, you have to keep its genitals, like its testicles. There are in some, in some places. Yeah. But yeah, that's, that's kind of the moral of the story is make sure you not only understand the rules for where you're going, but really think through how that's going to work in practice because i thought i knew what i was doing in my head and had it all covered but right it it didn't work out quite the way i had expected gotcha so you know for a first-time western hunter and for i'm basically a first-time western hunter as well i've been on a western trip i've i've made the mistake of probably not like my mistake was probably jumping right into big 
the most expensive hunt, which is elk, right? Um, <laughs> buying yep. all the gear necessary over the period of a year. And, and, uh, you know, now I just have to, you know, I don't have to spend near as much money to go on the trip that I'm going on this year because I already have mm-hmm. that. But what were some things that on this hunt that as far as not necessarily the hunt itself of like harvesting the animal, but the preparation, uh, what were some mistakes you made or, you know, some, uh, things that you had to learn from as far as preparing for this hunt? Well, I kind of got kind of lucky. Actually, my wife and I ran a, a race that was like a, a benefit race for a local organization that takes special forces, um, soldiers and marines out on hunt duck hunts and stuff like that every year some family of mine are involved with so we had trained for that little race which i i hate running i don't <laughs> run if i can avoid it but that that race was actually like the week after we got back from wyoming so i had been running you know every night which was really really beneficial i think you know cardio is what really is going to help you especially with the air being a little thinner we were only at about 45 to 4,600 feet above right. sea level. But where I live is 200 feet above sea level. Right. So it was a pretty good change. Um, the cardio was a big one. I made a point to get out and practice with the, with the rifle we took um, at, at extended ranges, which was a good thing because I was able to harvest the caliber of buck that I was able to harvest because I could shoot a little farther. Um but but really, I think kind of by virtue of picking the little bit easier, higher success, more controlled environment hunt, we were able to avoid having a lot of major issues besides bringing a tent that yeah. didn't quite wasn't quite up to muster. Right, right. So so overall, there wasn't very many um, there wasn't very many problems you know as far as getting out there and and you know running into landlocked public ground or running into other hunters or anything any issues that you had to overcome like right right away the the one issue we did run into was there was a there was a road that went you know up through a piece of public and then cut across some private to another piece of public and based on um, Onyx maps and even the county GIS. It, I thought that that was a county road, mm-hmm. which if it's a county road and it cuts across public, you can still or private, you can still drive across it. And when we got up there, it was actually not a county road; it was private where it crossed private. So that was kind of the area that I was planning to to hunt, um, and we weren't able to access it. So we had to kind of change plans and hunt a different different area. We found actually a, a good spot. We were able to camp, kind of off the side of the road in front of a, a knob that we could hike up on and glass of, you know, three miles in every direction, most of which was public all the way from the roads. So we were able to, most of the, most of the pronghorn we killed were actually somewhere in that, you know, three miles behind our camp. And we were able to spot them from up on top of that ridge and then, you know, make a stalk. Nice. Nice. So, so did you, run into any private landowners that were saying, Hey, no, no, you can't be here or you got to stay off this or, Hey, yeah, I'll let you on, but you got to pay a trespassing fee or anything like that. You know, we really, we didn't. Um, but we, I guess by virtue of having that 
Onyx maps yeah. and knowing was ahead signage? of time where we kind of there wasn't that was actually the most confusing thing right um i mean you would have this you know rolling prairies with sagebrush and right across the middle of the field would be the public private boundary and there was no, you know not necessarily a fence no signage that's crazy and if you if you didn't have you know that map i have the onyx app on my phone so i was able to keep track of it and the the buck i shot i shot him on the the end of the second day and actually he was it was a 400 yard shot and the reason it was that far was because i couldn't get around i could have shot him with a bow if the private land that he was next to wasn't private because i could have stalked around the other side of the ridge and popped right over but as it was the only approach from public 400 yards was as close as i could get before they would scatter and run but he was he was within a hundred yards of the public private boundary nice so having that you know that um map on my phone was really helpful but and i think we were able to stay far enough away from the private for the most part that you know there was no need for anybody to come and talk to us cool cool and as far as when when you finally got out there one thing that i love about the west is driving out there right i'm i'm just like a little kid my i'm i'm glued to looking out the window at all the things that are different from you know where i live and mm-hmm. it's absolutely gorgeous out there when you pulled in and you finally found where you were going to start hunting were you seeing like a good number of antelope in, in that area that made you feel confident that, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm going to have success. We actually did, uh, you know, driving through Southeast Wyoming, which we had to do to get to our area. They're just pronghorn everywhere. So we were seeing a lot, you know, out in those prairies. When we got to our unit, we pulling in the first piece of public ground we passed is actually where I made that stalk with my bow we look, you know, we're looking out the window of the truck and bedded up a up a little coulee where a buck and a doe bedded down. So we got out, you know, got the binoculars out, and I was like, well, I probably wouldn't shoot him with a rifle, but I'm gonna try and sneak up on him with a bow. And right, you know, we were able to get around behind him and come over the ridge. And you know, like I said, they they got away. I I let him leave due to the wind, but you were seeing animals we the were, entire time. We we were seeing animals the entire time. Not. I think I saw, we were out, we got out there Saturday afternoon, rifle season opened Sunday, so we actually killed two does Sunday, I killed my buck at the end of the day Monday, and then we killed a doe Tuesday and a doe Wednesday. Wow. And we could have, we could have tagged out sooner. Yeah. But after that first day, we killed two pronghorn, we're like, we're going to slow this down, because we want to, you know, enjoy it. Right, right. Uh, That's awesome. That is so, so awesome. Yeah. Um, is is this something that you're going to be doing again, you think? Uh, or are you planning something different? I will definitely be doing it again. I'll be buying my pronghorn point this fall. Um, but this, this November, I've got a buddy who, after talking to me about this hunt, he decided he wanted to, to hunt out west. And we're going to go to Colorado and hunt mule deer this November. We've put in for tags in a unit that has... 85% draws, I think, and we've got a second choice that should be a sure thing. So we're going to go in that third rifle season, which is the 3rd through the 11th of November, and uh, chase mule deer in the rut. Oh, 
Awesome. That'll be fun. Cool. Is yeah. that is that going to be kind of a, a high country uh, hunt or a lower elevation hunt? It, it'll depend on the weather and on the snow levels. This unit um, has some sagebrush, you know, rolling hills in the low country, but it goes up to 12,000 feet. So just if there's not a lot of snow, we'll be we'll be hiking it up to the top. And if it, but if it's, you know, snow is pushed the deer down, we'll be able to still, you know, get a, get a hunt in. Right. Cool, man. That's so cool. Yeah. My, my wife actually laughs at me. I've got spreadsheets trying to map out which <laughs> hunts I want to go on, which years. That's, so that's I think, funny. I think next year, I think next year we're actually, my wife's going to go with me. We're going to go to on an elk hunt, probably in Idaho, maybe Colorado, but she's going to, she's going to go with me on that one. So that'll be awesome. a, that'll be a bow hunt in the rut. Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to my hunt. I know. And, uh, man, good luck this fall going to, uh, hunt mule deer. And, uh, I'm excited man, you're going to have to come back on and talk about that hunt as well, regardless of, absolutely. uh, Yeah, absolutely. Regardless if you, uh, harvest or not, but man, I want to say thank you very much for taking time to hop on the podcast and, uh, chat with us today. Um, and good luck. Hey, thank you. Good luck to you too. Huge shout out to Nate for coming on the podcast and giving up his time to tell his story of his uh, first ever Western hunt. I'm excited, man. Stories like this get me fired up to go live some of my own adventures. And hopefully you guys are feeling that same way as well. Uh, So again, huge shout out to Nate and huge shout out to all of you who have continued to support the Nine Finger Chronicles and the Sportsman's Nation, along with all the other podcasts that are on this feed. Uh, Be sure to go check out the Big Game feed as well. So that's Sportsman's Nation, Big Game, Western Hunting feed. And uh, take a look at all those podcasts as well. Just a ton of great content coming from the Sportsman's Nation. Other than that, huge shout out to all the companies that support this particular podcast the nine finger chronicles we have wasp archery lone wolf tree stands ripcord arrow rests exodus trail cameras and ozonics um please go out and support those companies because they support this company and man that's it man not a lot to say go check out the social media um please go definitely go like the Instagram and Facebook accounts for the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network and the Nine Finger Chronicles as well. If you're new or if you're veteran to listening, please go to iTunes and leave a five-star review. That would be very helpful and much appreciated. And after that, ladies and gentlemen, if you're going to be in a tree, please wear your damn safety harness. Have a good week.